0: Log Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black panthers. And fuck the black police. That 13th amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body Can't trap my mind Not to ever be free Okay Free the Black Panthers ftbp Stand for free the Black Panthers And up the black police Feds infiltrated our movements For black leadership roles But we still here Then the bill here Up Coin hell, Pro Shout It's gonna be televised Black power Be scared guys That be standing there Like they paralyzed We safe for the system Cause we above the system We keep ARs and pistols Shotguns, that's worth the crystal But that's for self-defense Make sure we have no issues Be sure to leave it at the door If you have it with you This for them freedom fighters That lost they freedom Until they freedom We screaming carpe die This for the we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck okay, me, i mad. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for Free the Black Panthers, it's up the Black Police. That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for Free the Black Panthers, It's up the Black Police. Fans have our movements, from black leadership rose But we still been build here, in the bill here, Upcoin, tail pro RBG, rbg 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 my sisters my brothers the the elderly, that's really all i need we suited we booted don't do it you stupid we head to the armory black women and goddess regardless my heart just don't follow misogyny foolish that don't tolerate it melanated so you gotta hate it Barack rock up another conversation trump in to get inaugurated damn unify or die nbpp.org first and foremost the new black Panther party to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
1: this morning what we're going to talk about, I, can, I guess I can call it shampoo, okay? Now all of you know that when you're going to go down, you're going to go down and clean your carpeting. You go down the store, you get the machine, and you go in and buy a little thing called shampoo to clean the carpet. And what shampoo does is really it takes the sham out and leaves the poo in, okay? <laughs> and that's what's been going on through history with black folks. They keep taking the sham out and leaving the poo in. So this morning we're going to do a little shampooing, okay? And we're going to start off, and we'll show you, take you right through history again, through a second segment of history, and we're going to start dealing with some of the issues about reparations. And everything I tell you <coughs> must be taken in that context if you really, truly are going to understand the nature of reparations. That's the only way you're going to do it. You must understand the nature of it. And what it's saying is this, what I'm saying to you, is that reparation is not a nicety. It's not something nice to have for black folks. It is now an absolute necessity. If you do not get reparations soon, black folks, as I told you before, are through. Reparation is not a nicety, it's a necessity. Now, I first wrote my book, Black Labor, White Wealth. That's what I was telling you then. That's that's been seven years ago when I wrote the first affirmative action plan in the United States in 1971 that Bush, just Jed Bush just killed in Florida, as you all been reading about in the papers. I wrote that plan in 1971 as reparations for black folks. And nobody was giving anything to black folk for reparations at the time, but it was killed off within six months. It was converted over to, and converted to things for minority women, children, gay, handed-back, midgets, humpbacks, everybody else. Everybody but black folk. And it was diluted down, the black folk got nothing out of it. So affirmative action was dead six months after I put it, on the, put it on the floor. But now they've been given the pretense that somehow they've had affirmative action all these years, and they haven't had anything for black folk. Black folks haven't gotten anything out of affirmative action. And so in a way, I'm glad that affirmative action is now dead. I want them to bury it, you know, not throw firewoods, commemorate and let it go. And I want black folks to go to reparations. Because that's the only way. You've got to have reparations. There's no other choice. You've got to have reparations. And that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. But also I'm going to try to show you in my little discussion with you is all the things I want you to be aware of, the tricks and the games. That's why I'm gonna pick a certain part of history to show you the games. And you all take your little notes and try to remember these things. So you see the same games reoccurring all the time, you know what the game is, what they're up to. And so that's what we'll be talking about, reparations for black folk. Now let's start talking about reparations for black folk, and let's take, a, let's take a point. Let's take Juneteenth, since this is Juneteenth weekend, the Juneteenth celebrations. Now, I talked to you earlier about the importance of culture. So we have to have Juneteenth as a culture process because we don't have any culture. And so when you hear me criticize Juneteenth in a few seconds, it's not because I want you all to disassociate or discontinue celebrating Juneteenth. It's just that I want you to do it in the right light and the right tone so you understand what the games are. It's just like if I were to start talking about Kwanzaa right now. that I don't want you all not to celebrate Kwanzaa because we have to have culture. We don't have any culture. The culture we used to have, white stole it from you. All your culture has been stolen and exploited by everybody else. See, you, right now, your culture in this country, your major contribution would have been your genius. See, black folks have a genius for creating music, dance, language, slang, you see, art. And even, and, and even the way we wear our clothes, that was our culture. But everybody has taken and exploited and gotten rich off it. Every time you come up with anything, they take it from you because you integrate. You see, one time, Dixieland music was black. You see, jazz was black. Gospel was black. Blues was black. Rhythm and blues, rhythm was black. Now they got your music. That is a $103 billion a year industry, and black folk get less than 1% out of it. You see, even the Hispanics got your music now. They take African music and mix it with black music and call it Latin beat. See, everybody makes money off of black folk because when you integrate it, you open yourself up, Integration means filleting yourself, saying, come get whatever you want. And you integrate, they went inside and took everything out and left you with nothing. And, you and that's why you cannot make it under the integration process. Nobody else opens themselves up like I said, come get what you want, take it and make a, living, make a living off of it. That's why now they have a rock and roll, you know, museum for whites. And called Elvis Presley the king of, of rock. Or rock and roll. Because it used to be rhythm and blues until white folks discovered it. See, they discovered black music like they discovered America. See, then, what, what, once they discovered it, then, see, then they, they became theirs, and we and we just gave it to them. So, so we gotta have culture. And if I were talking about Kwanzaa, see, friend, I would tell black folks: so you gotta understand that co- we gotta have Kwanzaa because Kwanzaa gives us something to celebrate at Christmas other than the white form of of, of Christmas celebration. Celebrating, but Kwanzaa is comes out of Swahili. And Swahili is a fabricated language. That's not a real language, a fabricated language that was created by the initial, original slave traders. And that was Arabs. The Arabs started Swahili. They started Swahili intentionally to be able to communicate with with Africans, black Africans. And so that's a fabricated language. So if we talk about we're going to get, we're going to avoid the white man's language and run over to start dealing with Swahili and dealing with the Arab language, See, you just just jump from the fire into the frying pan. Doesn't make any difference one way or the other. But again, we need the celebration, but you need to understand that. Now, the same thing is true with with, with Juneteenth. And see, all this will give you the context for reparations now so you understand the issues. See, Juneteenth is the same thing. See, Juneteenth started off as a major celebration in Galveston, Texas in 1865. It's where, when black folks finally got the word, the last ones in the country to get the word, that they were free, you see? And they went out and started celebrating, and we passed it on down, you know, through the South and the Southwest up to this point as a major day for celebrating. But in reality, what you're gonna find out in a few minutes is that you have never been free. They never gave you your freedom. The freedom and what they, and the little game going on behind the whole thing about emancipation and also about Juneteenth, and we're gonna figure out what it is. So if we start getting our reparations, we're going to get it the right way. Now, let's go back now. See, let's go back to, to let's take Juneteenth as a kickoff point, since so this is Juneteenth weekend. You go back now to, let's say, about 18, about 1860, when Abraham Lincoln, the so-called great emancipator that you all will be celebrating over Juneteenth, the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln didn't do one single solitary thing positive for black folk one of the biggest scoundrels and culprits ever lived, in terms of black folks. So you start talking about celebrating Juneteenth and Abraham Lincoln, you gotta see if you need a deal of double deck. You're back to the shampoo again. See, you're back to, you start talking about great emancipator and, and, and how he freed the slaves. There goes the shampoo. Because you see, and, and, and that's what happened in, 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 the night, in 1963, when we had the great uh, Martin Luther King march. And I, and I had a dream speech. See, where'd they go to give that speech? But at the foot of the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. They stood at his feet and said, I got a dream by, with Abraham Lincoln standing behind you, he's one of the biggest scoundrels to black folk on earth. And even when our friends, the, uh, um, uh, Forakim, they had the million Man march. You see, because they don't have the truth, they don't know some of the similes, they get caught in. So they didn't go to the foot of the great emancipator and sit at the foot of Abraham Lincoln and give the Million Man March speech. You see, and, and whether it's whether, so whether Mondo the King of Farrakhan or our people, we keep getting tricked because we don't understand what's going on. Now, if you go back to 1860, Abraham Lincoln had absolutely no interest in black folk. No interest in black folk. His interest was very, a very simple thing. All he wanted to do, as a matter of fact, every speech he gave in my research shows that what he said is that I can't stand black folk. I don't need black folk. Don't want black folk. And what I would ideally like to do is to recolonize black folk and ship black folk out of the country. I would like to ship them either to Latin America, Central America, or back to Africa just to get rid of them. And see, and that's what he wanted to do in 1860. But you see, he couldn't do it. Because he checked around trying to figure out how he could do it. After he became president, he found out something, which is a point that you all got to remember, because we're going to talk about these things later. He found out that white folk needed these black folk. They couldn't stand. See, they needed them. They needed poor black folk, because, see, no white person wanted to do the dirty, nasty, dangerous work. So black folk then were needed as a labor class, point one. They needed your labor. The second group that, that came to Lincoln the great emancipator that, that we like to worship in Washington, D.C., was a group of merchants, all the merchants, all over the country. You had people like, all the people tied into the textile industry, the cotton industry, the insurance industry, the sugar industry, the, the tobacco industry, the rice industry, the indigo industry. See, all those people came and said, no, you can't get rid of those black folk. Because you see, also, uh, because the well, people like us in the cotton industry, in the leather industry, we need them as consumers. We need them as consumers. We need those blacks that you call darkies as consumers. Because right now look, we know we got five million of them and and and, and I know that that every year every every, every slave owner is going to buy two pair of clothes for them. A pair of summer clothes and a pair of winter clothes and, and those clothes are made out of what we call what we call nigger cotton. That's the roughest part of the cotton that nobody else could wear. It's rough, tough, it's just almost so so rough to take the skin off the body but they made but that's what they made the clothes off of so you had whites who had these industries all they did was make what they called nigger clothes for slaves they knew they had that market and the same thing with the leather industry they knew it was in the leather industry that 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 every slave would get two pair of shoes a year they would sell they would give them a pair of sandals and a pair of bro games. okay and so they knew that was so they so 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 a white leather maker said hey i know for a fact I'm going to sell 5 million pair of sandals and 5 million pair of bro games every year. That is a built-in lock market. I got black folks as a locked consumer market. So I, got, so I got black folks trapped two ways. One, you see, as I told you a few minutes ago, is because we need their labor. And secondly, we need them as consumers. And that's the only way then, is the reason they reason to send blacks out of the country. They had one other third reason that popped up, and they tried to deal with it through Lincoln, was that the white slave owners said, but on the other hand, they said, don't you know we've invested something like $8 billion? That we got more money invested in slaves than we got in all the businesses in in the United States and all levels of government put together. The biggest form of investment in the United States was money invested in slaves. And they didn't want to lose that money. And so what Lincoln did to try to resolve that, he said, well, what I'll do is that, let me give you all some reparations. And if I decide to send them out of the country, I'll give you some reparations. So he sent a bill over to Congress to give reparations to white slave owners, saying if you all were free to slaves, I'll give you reparations for it. And the only place they got it was in Washington, D.C., which in Washington, D.C., just happened to be the slave capital of the world at that time. And so in Washington, D.C., it went through where they awarded something like three hundred dollars for every black slave that was released by a white owner, and that was reparation for whites. Now, now the whole context is set. So, so, so people say, "Well, the war started now. What are you going to do with all these blacks?" So we go from about 1861 to about 1862. Now, that's a, now remember I just told you these points. Now, about they needed blacks for labor and consumer they wanted reparations. Remember those three points. Now, here comes 1862. In 1862, we're into a war, and the, and the North is losing the war. The South is beating the devil out of the North. The South is beating the devil out of the North. There was no way that the North could win the war. No way they could win it. They couldn't win it for some very simple fact. Fact one, they couldn't win it because the South had all the wealth. The South had all the wealth. The North did not have any wealth. The North was a poor area of the country. They didn't have any money. Because see slavery, I just told you, you had eight billion dollars just in black slaves alone. And a white person in the south who owned the slaves had a massive amount of money over northern. As a matter of fact, a white person in the South who had what we call a gang plantation, we used gang slavery. He had 400 times the wealth of a temple of northern white. A white man in the South with two slaves had more money than the average white male in the North by throwing his family, his home, his car, I mean his wagons, animals, business, anything else throwing together. That's where all your wealth was. A black person, a black slave was a walking American Express card. Every white person could make a living just by having one slave. All they do is put him up in the morning, send him out to work, and go back to bed, and wait for them to come home in the evening and take the money from it and get paid for it. It was called rent a slave. They would, they'd buy slaves and rent them, and rent them out to other people up and down the road to use them. So that, so, so everybody understood that, that that was the name of the game, is that you got to have and own some black slaves. Now, so what we did, and so by 18, so, so the, the North couldn't win. So the North said, we got to have a plan. We got to have a plan so that the North could beat the South. Now, see, nobody's talked about freeing the slaves. Don't, don't y'all get off on the wrong point. Nobody's talking about freeing in the black folk. So now we're up to about 1862. All of a sudden, a couple of generals around Lincoln said, look, we're losing this war. We're losing the war. We're getting the devil beat out of us. What can we do? Lincoln said, I don't know. It's i tell you what, I, we got a scheme. Why don't we play some games, play some trickery? Let's use a little shampoo. What we'll do is let's turn around and tell, put out the word, that you're gonna free the slaves. You put out the word that you're gonna free the slaves, what would that do to the South? See, first of all, that would create all kind of havoc for them. Because, you see, the reason they're beating us is because they got five million blacks there on their team in the South. You got five million black slaves in the South that, that are taking care of the white families, taking care of the yards, the garden, the food, the white families, protecting them, feeding them and clothing them, and doing all the work while all the white men out fighting the war. Are y'all following me? So, so, so the South is using blacks to build the highways, the bridges, the railroads, to haul, the, and run the wagons and hold all the supplies, to work in the factories and the mines and the timber yards, to build the bridges, being done by black folk, so that way all the white men in the South would go out and fight the war. So at about September, about September the 22nd, about September the 22nd, uh, 18, about 1862, that Lincoln then... Announced, announced his intentions of freeing the slaves. He said, I'm going to free the slaves. Let's see what the South would do. And, uh, and then the general say, well, let's, put out, let's not put out anything in writing until we get a major political victory, whether it's Vicksburg or Gettysburg or something. And then we got something to really piggyback on and announce that you're really going to do it. And so that way, and if we go ahead and do it, uh, maybe that will really be a big incentive. So that was in September, about September 22nd, 1862. The word went out. The South was very leery about whether or not the North was going to free these slaves. And so then come uh, about January the 1st, 1863, uh, he then said, well, what we're going to do is that we're still losing the war, so let's then just wait. And so they decided to wait. So let's wait a few years they're losing the war. But the generals had picked up the fact that he was going to, that he was going to free the slaves. So a guy like General, like general uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, he's in now fighting in the South. So he says, well, what, well, well I'm going to take that up and just and follow through with it. Let's go ahead and do it because I'm a general. I'm fighting down here, not, not the president. I'm fighting. And if we can destroy the South by tricking them and thinking we've got to free the slaves, let's do it. So then he came up with this whole thing about, let's take the land, all the confiscated land. And the property from these white plantation owners, every time we take over a plantation, let's take it. Now let's take it and divide it up and give 40 acres of the mule to every black. And let's give every black 40 acres of the mule. And that way, even, even if Nixon, I mean, even if Lincoln hasn't moved, we can still do something to, to devastate the South emotionally. And so Tecumseh Sherman then says, now I'm every, all the land I take from these white plantation owners, I'm going to give it to black folks he goes up and sets, sets aside a, a long strip of land running from Charleston, South Carolina, all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida, and all those islands off the coast there. He says, that's going to belong to black folk. That black folk are going to own all that land from South Carolina all the way down to the top of Florida. And they're going to own all the islands. He says, I'm going to give that to them. And as soon as he, as soon as he set it up to do it, Guess who called him in shortly after that? Maybe a few months or a year after, whenever he started. Because maybe about a year after, because a lot of blacks got over there and got to land. A lot of blacks did get on those islands. If you go and, and some of those islands that you all go over and watch now was like Hilton Head. See, Hilton Head Island was all black. See, blacks were over there and got Hilton Head, and, and some of them got guns and said, "You ain't gonna take nothing from us." And then, and and also John's Island became all black. And also Amelia Island off the, off the coast of Florida now, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, became all black. But see, nowadays they're no longer black because whites have taken them back now and made them into luxury islands for whites. But those, but blacks took those islands, all up down that coast and took that land under Sherman's order about 40 acres of the mule. And now, about a few, about a year after that, our esteemed emancipator of black folk jumped in and said, you can't do that. You can't, I, that, that, take back that order. And forced Sherman to kill the program. did not give black folks any land. Your great emancipator Abraham Lincoln says blacks don't get any land, and a lot of blacks already had that land over there, and whites went and tried to take it away from them later on. So the great emancipator started started, of whizzing around, and that was about that was about about 1864. Now, now we come coming about 1865. Now, what he said, now at this point in time, he's going to put out the what we call the Emancipation Proclamation. So he put out the Emancipation Proclamation, and but the Emancipation Proclamation took effect as of January 1, 18, in, in 1863. He expected black folk to come out and celebrate that so he can p- get the South all riled up by the blacks being free, even though he knew black folk, in fact, would not be free. He put that out on January the 1st. But nobody bought into it, and blacks didn't come out to celebrate. Now, did I say 1863? I mean 1865. That, that, that thing came out, was announced at that time. But here's what happened, though. When the word got out in 18, and Black folk didn't come out on January 1st, because, see, my people won't come out in the time and celebrate anything. <laughs> see, that's too cold. So black folk didn't come out. Black folk didn't come out. So then, so the Emancipation Proclamation then... <clears throat> was sort of postponed, it was written for that point in time, enacted at that point in time. The word didn't get down until about May, about May 18th. They picked it up in, in uh, where public officials in the South said, Blacks are free. And, uh, and most people, so most people got the word in May that Black folk were free. It didn't get to Texas, the government in Texas, until June 19th that Black folk were supposedly free. And y'all following that sequence for me, okay. So all that's been moving across the country, saying that black folk are now free. But let me go back now behind this little game. They did not want to free blacks, as I said to you a few minutes ago. What they wanted to do was to disorganize the South by giving the pretense that somehow black folk were free. So here's what, here's what your good esteemed President Abraham Lincoln did. In the Emancipation Proclamation, what he said was this, I now hereby declare all the blacks who are in the Confederacy as slaves, as now being free. Now, listen to his logic. <clears throat> He's in the North with the Union, and the South is the Confederacy, and what he says is now all the blacks who are in the Confederacy on this, or the group that's broken away from the United States, y'all are free over there. Now, see, somebody's front light, that porch light was on, but nobody's upstairs at home. Now, now it, I, I think that gets to think the whole world was stupid. If you, in fact, if they've broken away from you and that's your enemy you're fighting, how are you gonna free somebody that you don't have any control over? So they had no, no control over those people. So he didn't free anybody in the Confederacy. He did not free that order. The Emancipation Proclamation did not free any slaves because the, 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 the slaves he was talking about weren't even in the Union up north. They were in the south, so he didn't free them. Now he could have freed some slaves if he wanted to because we had all these other slave holding states in the north, the border states, Kentucky and Tennessee and all the rest of them around in Maryland, but he didn't touch those states. He didn't touch those states. He didn't touch the states that he could have, where he could have freed slaves, he didn't. Where he couldn't free slaves, he took the pretext that he could. So therefore the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free anybody. And more importantly if you go back and read the emancipation proclamation also what he did in the emancipation proclamation trying to be slick again as a president he put in the proclamation that any black people any black i mean i mean, I mean any states or any whites in the slave holding states if you decide to come back into the union come back in the union and join us in the north you can continue to hold your slaves Now, let me give that to you again since since you all probably missed that. I'm going to give it to you again. Also, he had in the proclamation that even though I know, now, he didn't say that he he knew it, but the slaves who were in the South, (coughs) in those Southern states, he didn't free them. But he said, though, if if any of you states decide to come back in and rejoin the Union, because my whole intent is to maintain the Union, you can all continue to hold your slaves. And that way, the bottom line would have been that whites would have still had slaves in the North, and they still had slaves in the South. That was the logic. They didn't free anybody, but it gave the pretense of freeing black folk, and black folk were happy all over the country. Because see, most of them couldn't read the emancipation problem. They couldn't figure all this out. So they started dancing and singing in the streets that they were free. And in fact, they didn't free not one single black any place and gave the, gave the option to those, black, to those states to come back in and get their slaves back if they wanted them. And that was the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, <laughs> let's move up a little faster now. So remember that, that was a shame and gam. Nobody has freed any slaves. Now here comes the end of the war. The end of the war has come, and uh, at this point in time, since they have been running a game on everybody, and they have not freed any slaves, The first thing you got to do with the Congress is do what? Write what? What Constitution amendment? The 13th Amendment so they can actually in reality free you. So they had to write the 13th Amendment saying that that, that involuntary slavery is outlawed, the only way you can enslave a person is in fact what? What is it? If you've been duly convicted of a crime. Now remember that, because that's going to be a very important point now, we start to, that, you, that the, the 13th Amendment says, again, I told you how they trick you and always put in little clauses with a shaman game, so now they write the 13th Amendment, it says black folk are now free. And the 13th Amendment was written exclusively for black folk, even though it didn't say it. It just says that nobody, and then when you, and then when you read the Constitution, you see words like nobody, all, almost, everyone. They always use those words whenever they talk to black folk so you couldn't have a paper trail to get out of anything. So, and we got a lot of black leaders in America always use those same ambiguous words. We want everybody to be free. All people should have rights. The only people didn't have them was black folk. See, they're scared to say black folk. And every time you use that broad, ambiguous word, you play in that same game they were playing back doing slavery. And I keep telling our black leadership, quit trying to write things and speak broad and broad, ambiguous terms, talking about everybody rather than talking about your own people. See, every time you start talking about... <laughs> Whenever you start talking about poor folk, multicultural, culturally diverse, minorities, you play the game and lost. And see, everybody, they knew that in those, those days. So then when they wrote the, when they wrote the 13th Amendment, they said, now let's, 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 let's cut out something, let's do a little more shampooing, let's write the 13th Amendment. And this time we're going to say that they real this time really to God, we're really going to free them this time. And they wrote the 13th Amendment. It says that it is now constitutionally put in the Constitution that is illegal and unconstitutional, unconstitutional for you to commit anybody to involuntary servitude. Then they put a comma and says, except when you've been duly convicted of a crime. And we, you're going to forget how the little game goes again in a few minutes, okay? So that became the 13th Amendment. Now right after that, what happened was that they found out that most of the states says, hey, that doesn't mean anything. You didn't say black folk in particular. You used all them word alls and everyone. And so, and, and, and we don't know what you're talking about. And plus that, since you represent the federal government, if we're the state government, you didn't say who. So as far as we're concerned, I don't care if you're talking about the Emancipation Proclamation or the 13th Amendment, we still own them, still got them. So at that point in time, other pro- the Congress stepped in. Now you, got, you had, a, you had a, a few Republicans called radical Republicans that were committed to black folk, and, and they were very... Concerned about doing something positive for Black folks beyond what the president had tried to do, because Lincoln hadn't done anything for him except run a shell and pea game on them, shampoo. So at that point, that point, those congressmen stepped up: Charles, uh, Congressman Charles Stevens and uh, I mean uh, Th- uh, Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevenson and uh, Congressman Bingman. They said, "Let's do something positive." And I must tell you up front that the reason those two congressmen, in particular Stevens and something, were very interested in doing something for black folk both of them had black had black mistresses. You see, even though they were white, they had black they had black mistresses and black children. So they got up and said, we're gonna have to do something for these black folk, you know. And uh, so what what Stevens got up before the Congress and said, and this is why again you got to remember this was not when we start talking about reparation in a few seconds. What he says is that you got to do something for black folk. Contrary to all this sh- shampoo and you've been hearing from the President and everybody else, is that black people in America can only be one or two things: either you're going to be a slave or you're going to be free. You're going to be a slave or you will be free. He says, if you do not redistribute some of the wealth, resources, power, privileges and, and, and controls to black folks' hands, black folks will always be slaves. Now this was said before the Congress in 1865. Chuck Stevenson and Sumner says you cannot, you cannot turn black folk loose in this country. You cannot turn a loose five million black folk, penniless, broke, no land, no clothes, no food, no animals, no land, no weapons, no tools, and no money, and say they're free. He said you're running shampoo on them. It will not work. You cannot turn them loose without giving them something. You cannot turn a loose all these black folk without minimally giving them 40 acres, a mule, and $100. He picked up on what Sherman had said, General Sherman had said with the blacks off the islands of the East Coast, is that minimally, if black folk, and he said, until the day comes that you redistribute wealth and resources into these black folks' hands, they will always be slaves. And that was said in 1865. Now based on that, they then turned around and wrote the first civil rights law in the country. It's called the Civil Rights Act of 1865. They wrote that specifically to be economic development for black folks. And in there they talked about economics. It was economics. It had nothing to do with civil, had nothing to do with social, had nothing to do with voting, had nothing to do with getting along with people, had nothing to do with integration. What it was talking about is you had to redistribute some wealth and resources into the hands of black folks. But now that, now that Lincoln has been assassinated, you get another scoundrel as the president. His name is Andrew Johnson. They knew what reparations was. And what you all need to know what reparations is so that you won't get confused as things begin to develop because reparation will be the hottest issue in this country. From now, on, that's what I was prophesying to you all seven years ago, that, that that's reparation will be the hottest issue in this country. Reparation means compensation in the form of money, materials, or labor for injustices committed. That's what reparations mean. So reparations has always been economic justice. That's why my book, Black Labor, White Wealth, A Search for Power and Economic Justice, is about. That you're talking about economic justice, you talk about reparations. It means creating a structural economic inequity. So those congressmen understood that. So they asked for the 40 acres and a mule and $100. And they sent it over to Johnson, who was the new president of the United States, and he vetoed it. Then black folks don't need anything. They're now free. Quit giving them handouts. And, then, and now they're free. Let them live and survive on their own. And they use the term which says either let the ends work or starve. Okay? Now at that point in time, they killed the bill. Now these same congressmen came right back again later on that year and wrote the Seven second Civil Rights Act. And that Civil Rights Act again, when it once it got to the got to the, went through the Congress, it came out. It was called. It then became uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. That was the second Civil Rights Act. This time they had to tone it down some. And again, they started working the games, and the other, and, and they were losing their power, so they had to start putting in all this all oh, you all everybody everyone all this broad ambiguous language again. And they passed that law, passed the act again. This time they sent it over to Andrew Johnson. and uh, and they overrode, he tried to veto it again, they overrode him and it went into law. That law is still on the books, called the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Now that gave black folks the only thing positive, and even that that wasn't that strong, but at least that was the first time they ever got anything that gave them a legal right to do anything, was the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And following that, they did say, well, we'll take that 1866 Act, we're now gonna convert it over to another thing, called the 14th Amendment. And we're going to try to put as much of that in there as possible because nobody still would accept black folks as being free and would do anything for black. They say, hey, these black folks think they're free. They really think they still think they're emancipated. They think they're free. Even though we did not give them the 40 acres of the mule, they still think they're free. And I say, wait, we're going to show you how we're going to get them. Let's go back to the 13th Amendment unless let we got them again. Well the 13th Amendment says it's unconstitutional to have involuntary servitude except when duly convicted of a crime, they said we got them again because our people know how to play this game, this shampoo. So what they said is now, let's now write laws called the Black Codes in 1867. And the Black Codes were criminalized black folk, And we, were put, out, we were put out all kind of laws to make sure we got them again. So they wrote the, wrote the Black Codes throughout the South and, 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 and a lot of the northern areas enforced forced them. And those Black Codes then says we got you where we want you. Because all we got to do now is put out all all these laws, like for instance, that a black person must have a signed contract to work for a white man by January the 1st of every year or he's going to be arrested for being idle and vagrant. He had to have a contract in his hand that he could not, he could not be, so so that tied blacks down. They create all kind of laws about about blacks being guilty of looking out of the same window that white folks are looking out of (laughs) or having dogs that were barking. And one of the biggest ones that get rest of black folk for and criminalize them it was called um, playing games with white folk. And so, so when they, when they started that, now this set up a whole new system of thing. They passed those laws, and and so blacks didn't get the reparations. No reparations have come yet because they still got they still shampooing everything. So now what the North says, the North says, hold it. Yes, the South has passed these black codes, but we're not going to get involved again. Because right now whites want to re-enslave black folk. Why should we get involved? They said, we got what we want. We fought the Civil War. And all these things I mentioned to you are important now when we start talking about reparations. So watch me now. We fought the Civil War. We didn't fight the Civil War for black folk. We fought the Civil War for, for, for the North. We fought the Civil War so the North could take over the wealth of the South and so they could industrialize and build industries and factories. We fought the war so the North could, could build factories. We fought the war so that we could take the white, take, see whites had control of the Congress. Another thing about the three-fifths of a human being, whites were using that to, t- to control the Congress in the United States by, 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 by counting blacks in the census, but not letting blacks hold in the political office. So whites got the benefit of saying, I represent all those blacks even though they can't vote. And so whites were controlling the government. So that's what the North was fighting the Civil War was for, was to take away the wealth and the control of the South, power of the South. And, and, and so, so what the North says then is that you all can have those blacks now. If you want to do the black codes, fine, I don't care. They want they want 40 acres of mule, we're not gonna give them any reparations, 40 acres of mule. Um, and so they said what we need now is some kind of an instrument to make sure that, that, that we need the South to be redeveloped. We gotta redevelop the South. But 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 we but we can't do anything to help black folk, and 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 we don't want to hurt the north. So how do we do it? And uh, and people said, well, why why do you need black folk? They said, well, we still gotta have, to have black folk to pick this cotton. See, we still gotta have somebody to pick the cotton. We still, from I told y'all, we still need that black labor. We still need black labor. Yes, they are so-called free on paper, but since we didn't give them the forty acres and the mule, they are still not free. We still need them. How can we use them? And so they said, we got to create an instrument that would keep black folk and yet get them, and we still need the cotton. So what they did then, they created something called the Freedman's Bureau in 1868. The Freedman's Bureau is what created, later on created all of our black universities. And what they did, they took the Freedman's Bureau and set up a special commission that would go around through the South and supposedly, in quotes, to help black folk, and then the Congress appropriated some money for them. And what they were so sort been of doing then was trying to give black folks a little bit of food, a little bit of so-called minimum welfare, and uh, and to help them get and help them prepare to be free. But what they decided to do was to use the Freedmen's Bureau in a very slick scheme again to re-enslave black folks. And what they did then is they came up with a whole scheme saying we still need black folks' labor. So the Freedmen's Bureau then set up a thing called a contract system, where they drew up a little contract which if a black person signed it, it tied him to the first spot. See, in put his name in the first spot with an X and tied him into the white man at the South. Okay? And the freedman Bureau went all throughout the South, said they're going to do it in such a way where the white, because the whites in the North needed cotton. Still needed cotton. They, 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 they take, even though they destroyed the South, they moved all those factories and all the cotton from the South to the North. And now the North got all the plants in the South, and they need the factories. At that point in time, in the eight, late 1860s, in the late 1860s, over 60% of all this country's export and wealth was in cotton. They were still shipping cotton out. And they needed to sell cotton because like, like, like England was buying something like 1 billion pounds a year. And they needed that cotton, but they didn't, and, and they could have solved, they could have solved a racial problem at that point in time by just simply saying, if we take, if we need cotton, and we need cotton production, why don't we give the 40 acres and the mules to the black people, and let them raise the cotton and buy it from them? You know, if if the country needs cotton to survive, because that's our major industry, why don't we give land, mules, and money to black folk, let them raise the cotton and buy it from them? And see, the racism in this country was so acute and so strong, they said, don't give them anything. What you do is go around and sign up the contract and make them work for whites, and we'll buy it from whites. And almost every state in the United States then passed law saying that black folk couldn't even raise some of this cotton and, and tobacco. They took the, uh, the Freedman's Bureau in 1868 and said, look, what we're going to do now is that we got to figure out a way not to give these black folk 40 acres of mules and no reparations. except the Freedman's Bureau said, go get them to sign contracts. Because yes, we can go give black folk 40 acres of mules and still get our cotton. But we don't want black folk to have any wealth and power. No wealth and power for them. So what they did, and after about three years, the Freedmen's Bureau went throughout the South, signed up every black person, every black farmer, every black family to contracts. Those contracts then locked black folk into what you call sharecropping and peonage. Locked them in, and not only did it lock them in, but here's what it did to them. Locked them in. But in those, but what it did when they locked him in, they told him it was voluntary for blacks to sign it. But if he couldn't sign it, he would get no welfare, no food, nothing else. And once he signed those contracts, he gave away all of his rights again. See, now he, he, he had no right to quit. He had no right to, to protest a contest. He could not strike. Or he could not demand higher wages. And in that contract, what it told him in the sharecropping was that if you, in fact, would go back and work for your same white master that you used to work for and sign a contract with him, that if you work with him, he'll give you the seeds and the animals. He'll let you use his land. He'll give you the seeds, let you use his horse. But you have to do the work because they needed your labor. And at the end of the year, based on what, how well you produce, you can, either, you can have earned your care during that year, and you might get a profit, of any profits that's left over. And guess who kept the books? (laughs) Kept the books, and never did black folk ever break a profit. If they never broke a profit, then most of them not only didn't break a profit, but see, and they couldn't protest, but if they talked back, then whites could have them arrested on those black codes for being insolent, talking back to white folk. And then, after, once they did that, he was criminalized. Then he could, didn't have to pay him anything. And so when that happened, by, so by 1869, 1870, most of these blacks were frozen all across the South again, locked back into slavery. And the United States government had participated in it again, participated in all these corporations. And they, and, they wouldn't, and they wouldn't give black folk land, even the simple 40 acres of the mule. And keep in mind that in 1862, the last Homestead Act was passed in the United States. The last Homestead Act was passed in 1862, which means all those 11 million white immigrants I told you about a few minutes ago started coming in between 1865 and 1880, and then the other 26 million that came in the end of the year, all of them came in here to get land while they were running the shampoo on black folk, running the shampoo game on black folk. As a matter of fact, in that period, in that period between 1862, between 1862, in the turn of the century, in 1900, the United States gave away one billion acres of land to whites, and black folk couldn't get an inch. Black folk did not get one inch of that out of one billion acres. As a matter of fact, the United States gave away more land to the United States railroads by giving them six miles on each side of the railroad across the United States. They gave them more land than there is in the entire state of Texas. And black folk couldn't get an inch for reparations. And you see the game then where they locked black folk back into their labor, enslaved them again, and locked them in. And they needed us for consumers. And that went on. It went on. Let me jump up and show you how the game continues. We never got into reparations. And we still weren't free based on, 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 on Charles, uh, on uh, Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner's definition. What they said as two white, con- white congressmen back in 1865 is that there's absolutely no way on earth black folk can ever be free and ever be emancipated unless you give them something where they can be in charge of their own lives. And that's never happened. Okay? And that's why if you look back right now, I'm telling you all, when I talked about what the Wall Street Journal said and what Detroit News said at the outset a few minutes ago and what Alan Greenspan said, when you were almost 98% in direct slavery and 2% in indirect slavery. That means that 100% of all the black folk in America were enslaved in 1860. But even then, you had one-half or of one-percent of the nation's wealth. And here you are 140 years later, when you're supposedly 100% free. You still only have one-half or one-percent of the nation's wealth. How can you sit there and talk about you're free and emancipated and all the game and shampooing going on? And even in modern-day terms, when the, when the white newspapers tell you that the shampoo is going, you still haven't gotten the black leaders' wives say, "Hold a second, something's wrong. You can't keep tricking my people." Yeah. As a matter of fact, when we get into reparations, you want, I want you to have these arguments when people start telling you about why they are opposed to reparation for black folks. One of the first things you're gonna hear that we oppose the, black, the reparation for black folks because we've already paid our dues. We fought the Civil War to free black folks. You didn't fight the Civil War for black folk. As a matter of fact, on the eve of the Civil War, in 1860, they'd already done a survey. And they found out something like 99% of all the white people in America were opposed to freeing black slaves. Nobody wanted to free black slaves. 99% of all the whites in America were opposed to freeing slaves. Now, all of a sudden, 150 years later, after the fact, you can say, well, we fought the war for black folk. You didn't fight the civil war for black folk. Just like the same little game, the same game of shampoo they ran on you after the integration. Now they talk about how how segregation is so bad and how every white person was in favor of integration when it's even as late as the late, early 1970s. Eighty-seven percent of the white folk in America in, 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 19, in the 1970s were still opposed to integration for black folk in America, saying black folk were moving too fast and wanted too much. You see, every time there's a game, we get the shampoo. They run this same sham and lead the poo in. So now when you start talking about reparations, they can start running these games on you again about we've already paid our dues for fighting. We died and fought to get to free black folks. They didn't die and free the black folks. Black folk are still enslaved. They have never been emancipated. If we're going to get it, we've got to go back now and remember all those principles. They used us as a labor class to get wealth. They got their wealth now. We didn't get any. So we've got to go back and get us a model. Now, what most people keep trying to use as a model, they want to use the Japanese. I don't want to use the Japanese. I want to use the American Indians. Now, why did I pick the American Indians? Because, see, the American Indians were the only group that was stipulated in the Constitution along with us. See, the Japanese weren't even in the country. See, when slavery slavery was ending, I did not have one Asian in America in 1840s. I didn't have one Asian or one Hispanic. Not one Asian or one Hispanic in the entire United States in 1840. So I can't compare with those, but I did have Indians here. And Indians were stipulated in in the Constitution, along with us, whenever they talked about black folk, they talked about Indians. But they didn't talk about all Indians. They only talked about those Indians who were not paying taxes. And see this very this is very important. They also talked about Indians who were not paying taxes. Because you see, Indians were also classified starting in eighteen seventy as being equal to white folk. See all Indians were see Indians were given an option that you were never given. What they wanted the Indians to do was to assimilate and give up some of the land, they can become white. <clears throat> and Indians were given that right to intermarry with whites and become white. And you got a system we're going to talk about, about hopefully, about the end of this thing. The system in this country is, to, is that people keep talking about, well, we're going to take over whites. You never take over whites. Whites are out of process. Each group that comes in, they give you an option of becoming white at some point. So that way they'll always be the majority population.
2: That's
1: the truth. Okay. So Indians became white. That's the truth. Just like you've got Hispanics now coming to this country, all the Mexican, Hispanics, and Latinos. See, 99% of them is classified by, by, by immigration laws and also by their driver's license being white. They are not part of what you all. They got a different issue than you got. And you got Asians now on probation to be white, okay?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so what we're going to do then? we're going to go back and track the Indians. That's the closest thing we can track in terms of reparations. Now, how did the Indians get over and get some of the things they're getting? Indians got slick. Even though the Indians were not quite as bright as black folk were, they were slick, they didn't get the shampoo that we got, okay? Now, what did the Indians do? First of all, nobody ever said any place in the Constitution, any place else on earth, that Indians were a nation. Nobody ever said the Indians were a nation. What was happening in the country, during all the period we were talking about, about, about doing the, the enslavement process and all the things in the 1860s, what was happening is that they were fighting Indians at the same time. All the way back when Abraham Lincoln was coming in, playing this little game with black folk, they were now fighting Indians. But the difference was that you had the United States government, the federal government fighting Indians. The federal government was responsible for protecting white folk. And so therefore, in the Constitution, when they talked about, when they, every time they mentioned the word Indian, it was only talking about Indians because the government had to fight Indians. The Department of War had to fight Indians and to protect the citizens. So Indians were stipulated for those reasons. The rest of the Indians that they, who went onto a reservation, they didn't have to pay taxes. But any reservation, any any who was not living on a reservation, he had to pay taxes like everybody else. So that's how they divided the Indians between those who live on the reservation and paying taxes, those who lived off did pay taxes. But Indians always had an option. They didn't all have to live on the reservation. They can go either way one way or the other. So they set up this situation where Indians then were, were being controlled or fought by the United States federal government. So Indians in a special category. Now here's what happened. After, after the Indians lost most of the battles in the country, the federal government was, was still dealing with them. They lost, but they lost. So they tried to put most of the Indians on reservations. And uh, they said to the Indians then, "Um, you are now basically a weak people. You've been a beaten people. And so the Indians said, well, as a beaten people, and we're on the reservation, what we're going to do, the first thing we're going to do, unlike those blacks over there, unlike those black slaves who just came out of slavery, we're not going to be like them. We're not going to be as foolish as they are. What the Indians say is, what we're going to do now is that since we've lost our land, we got to, first of all, lay a claim against the land. So Indians laid a claim against the land, saying that all the land in the United States originally belonged to us. We had a natural right to it. And so we didn't have any legal documents or any deeds showing we owned it. We have a legal claim to the land. So as a legal claim to the land, therefore you took it from us, you owe us. So you, and you, what the claim was based on what they called natural rights. Indians says there's a natural right to the land because we were the first ones who owned it even though in fact they were not not the first black sheep before those guys got here. But we're gonna talk about that today. Black sheep were be here about about 11, 12,000 years before the present day so-called Asian Indians came here. Blacks had been here already. But they said that was their land, okay? So that's what they called natural law to lay claims against the land. So that put them, so that meant they tried to impose an indebtedness on the, on the government. Now blacks over here who were coming free after slavery with, 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 with the shampoo on them, with, with, with a, with uh, Lincoln. See, they said we don't want anything. All oh, we want a chance to compete. We want equal opportunity. See, now, Indians laid claims. All black folk wanted was an equal opportunity, okay? Then the Indians turned around and said, we want to be into a trust relationship with the United States. So they shut up what's called a doctrine of trust for Indians, which says, since we are a weak and powerless people, since we don't own and control anything, then since you all beat us, and you've misused us and owned us now, then you owe it to us to take care of us. You see, you said you owe it to us to take care of us, so they call it a doctrine of trust. So the Indians then created a doctrine of trust so the United States government would take care of them. And as a result of that, see, then they could get free land, free labor, free medical care, free education, free casinos, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Tax-exempt status and pay no taxes, okay? Now, here are my people over here talking about, we want, first of all, we want, all we want is equal opportunity. We don't want you to give us anything. We don't want a handout. All we want is equal opportunity. Okay, the first thing. Secondly, where Indians, then Indians then they said, we are powerful, strong people. We don't need anything. Where Indians said, we are weak. Take care of us. <laughs> then over here, Indians then said, we don't, but we don't want to mix with you all. We, we are a separate people. We want to state ourselves. What we want to do is declare ourselves a nation. We're going to declare ourselves a nation, and we're going to write our own constitution to take care of our own people. Now, I go back over here to these ones that are being shampooed, see. What they want to say is, we want to be a part of your constitution. We want to move into y'all. You see, and, and they never once have they ever said that we're a nation. And so they're developing some kind of a constitution or, or a national plan or empowerment for ourselves like the Indians did. That's why I wrote this new book I got come out called Power Nomics. That's what it's about. Say, for once in your life, quit being shampooed, wake up, and smell the coffee. So, uh, so I wrote that one to say now, like the Indians, we're going to be a separate nation. We're going to be a nation of people just like Indians are. And the way, it's got, the, way, the, way the Indians got it approved, that's after they set the Constitution, they kept calling themselves a nation. And even though blacks in America are a nation within a nation, they've always been a nation within a nation. Black folk are just as segregated now as they were in 1954. You're still not integrated anything. You're just as segregated now. You're still a nation within a nation. All they have to do is declare themselves a nation, get them a constitution, and that's what you're going to get in power now. and y'all make sure you buy that book when it comes out, okay? You're going to get that. Now, so now, so they got that set up. Now, what we want to do then is, so the Indians then said, they kept playing around this thing about being a nation, being a sovereign nation called themselves a foreign nation because they had to deal with the federal government because they had been because the federal government was protecting the citizens. So then, by then, about 18, by 1832, a Supreme Court justice named um, John Marshall, he, uh, and he ruled and made it official because that time we, we had we had a do-gooder white liberal out messing around with the Indians on the reservations, and uh, and they, they, and I think it was in Georgia and, they, and somebody. There was a law in Georgia that said, you know, they didn't want whites on the, on the reservation stirring up the Indians. So, uh, so the whites arrested him and put him in jail, something like this. He appealed and they sent him to the long, like, something like 15 years of imprisonment. He then appealed and went to the Supreme Court. They got in the Supreme Court in 1832. Chief Justice Marshall ruled and said that, <coughs> that, that the Indians are a separate nation. He picked up that rhetoric that the Indians have been pushing about being a separate nation. And then he said, well, the Indians are a separate nation, so therefore this guy's got a right to go out there when he wanted to. And we made that ruling in 1832, that officially then made, in our constitutional law, they started accepting Indians being a separate nation, okay? Now, now they're a separate nation, and, uh, and with sovereignty, and now they got, now watch what happens now. Now they're getting dual benefit. They're getting reparations all the time. Now, Indians now, that means every state set up an Indian, Indian uh, commission. Every state has a separate Indian commission, now to give Indians what they want because they're under the doctrine of, of, a, of a trust, that they are dependent people and you have to take care of them, those on the reservation. And they're never going to lose the reservation because they're not stupid. Why would they leave the reservation they sit there and be taken care of? <laughs> and you always got people, to go, look how poor they are. Yes, they're poor because they ain't going to leave there. They want you to bring it to them. <laughs> they can leave anytime they want to. Any poverty the Indians got is poverty they sit there wait, waiting with for you to come resolve for them. Right. They don't have to stay on the <laughs> reservation. They stay there because that's free land and free everything. So when they set up that kind of a trust, Indians then sat there and waited for it. And But see, we didn't set up that kind of trust. And when they, when they got that ruling, that made it, made it legitimate then that Indians were now an official foreign nation. And then every state then set up an Indian commission and, uh, that gives Indian services. Then they set up a Federal Indian Bureau in Washington, D.C. The Federal Indian Bureau typically puts out something like about $23,000 to $26,000 a year for every Indian in the United States. Then you got the biggest, Cher- been the biggest Indian tribe in the United States, the Cherokee tribe that picks up in terms of reparations. They pick up something like about, you got about 155,000 Cherokee Indians out there to get $170,000, dollars $170 million a year in reparation funds. So Indians are getting all kinds of reparations. Indians have been getting reparations through treaties now, through land and free everything now for 200 some years. Black folk have got nothing because you went the wrong way. You cannot sit there and want to be a part of white society and try to, and that's exactly what the game they want you to play. Rather than say, no, I'm a separate nation. You have problems. You owe me just like you owe the Indians. The Indians should be your model. <laughs> and that's why Indians now can walk into all the cities and now set up special casinos. You only got 237 Indian reservations in the United States. And Indians now got 258 casinos in the United States. They've run out of they've run out of reservations to even put casinos on. And typically those casinos bring in one million dollars a day per casino. Not in revenue, not one million dollars a day in revenue, one million dollars a day in profits. So the Indians now took those took those funds as reparation funds, and now they are billing, taking that money and they're building economic structures for their people. They're building shopping malls and centers and all kinds of things, industries for their people, while we sit here looking for a handouts through affirmative action that everybody else is giving away to everybody else but us. <laughs> Even make it worse than that, we should be trying, trying to be independent and arrogant, pretend that somehow we can compete with white folks with nothing. <laughs> and, we got, and we got these little watered down, useless half of business ain't worth two cents we we got something like about a half million black businesses in the United States. They only employ one and a half people on average.
2: And
1: they're always, they always bragging about, the number of black businesses have doubled in the last 20 years. Yes, the number of black businesses doubled, but the money didn't double. They didn't get no more money. You've got more people chasing the same dollar. Okay, so, so first our model then should be, uh, should be ideally be Indians. We can track them and do some of the same things they did. And that means that not only will we try to to, uh, to, to follow their policies of non-integration, but trying to be a separate people and getting them as much advantage as you possibly can. Secondly, under the doctrine of trust, make the government responsible to, to, because we are just as weak. There's no, nobody's more weak than slaves. And see, nobody, see, the, the Indians were not enslaved, they were free, and yet they are now classified as weak and, po- and weak people, so they're given all these benefits. That's why their kids can go to school and, and get free college education. That's why they got 28 universities in the country. So we then want to get some of the same identical benefits that, that Indians are getting. So when people start telling you every time black folk want to say, we need this and that, and they say, well, Dr. Anderson, black folk are not as bad off as the Indians. If I say the Indians are that poor, make black folk like Indians. Treat us like Indians if they're that poor. See, but they always want to, they always want to try to neutralize any concern you have about correcting conditions of black folk by pointing to Indians. And, th- and they point to those Indians who are sitting out here on the reservation they're sitting there waiting for something. And so what I'm telling them then let us be treated like that. Treat my people like Indians. Let us, let us be tax exempt. Well, we don't pay any taxes every year. We play the same game they're playing, okay? Now, the next thing we want to do is we've got we to be prepared to start answering some of these, some of these, some of these people who are going to be opposed to reparations for black folks. They're, they're going to come at you in three different ways. The first group that's going to come after you Are going to be whites. You can, you can rest assured right now that 99 and 1 100 percent of all white people in America are opposed, opposed to reparations for black folk. You must be, condi- be ready to deal with that. Be ready to deal with it. Because they're going to be opposed to you for a very simple reason. That's called R-A-C-I-S-M, racism. Racism means maintain the conditions on black folks the way they always were. So they don't want you to change anything. So they're going to come after you. But keep in mind that whether or not white folks want reparations for black folk is immaterial we could care less about what they think. That's not the issue. That's like, because in a system of justice, when it, it, it is not the perpetrator's responsibility to decide whether or not you're entitled to compensation. See, in other words, if you ran over my house right now and killed my dog or something, I sue you, you can't say, well, I, I, yeah, I killed your dog tore up your house, but I'm against your suing me. That's not immaterial to me. It is black folks' uh, decision whether or not they want reparations and how they're going to get it. So, so, and they start telling about white folks oppose it, Fine. I told you a few minutes ago, 99% of all the white people in America were opposed to freedom for black folk out of slavery. Keep that in mind. 99% were opposed to your being freed in 1860 at the eve of the Civil War. Also in, again, doing integration, you had about 87% of all the white people in America were opposed to integrating. So whether or not they want emancipation or not is immaterial. So be ready to deal with them. The second group you've got to deal with are going to be black folk. You're going to have all kinds of black folk in this country going to be opposed to reparation for black folk for, for you. They're going to be jumping out, <laughs> they're going to be jumping out, of, they're going to be jumping out of the woodwork. They're going to be jumping out of the woodwork because they're scared to death. They're just as scared now as they were in 1860. They're going to say, we don't have anything, and, and when we ask for something, they, they'll take away what we got, and we don't have anything, but they'll take nothing away from us. And so. And you're going to have that group that's always scared, and they're always going to say, it's better for us to have nothing than you try to get something, because that way they'll take us back to nothing which where we are already. So, so watch out for that group. They're going to be coming out. The other group you're going to come out against, you're going to be a lot of your black leadership in America. The black leadership is going to come out of the walls. Whites are going to pay a lot of blacks to come out against reparations for black folks. Okay. And I've already been told this by one of the biggest white law firms that I know have already said across the table for me and my staff The and Dr. Anthony, we're going to help you all with reparations. These are Jews now. Said, we'll help you all with reparations, but the problem you got to watch out for is that you're going to have all kinds of blacks coming out against you. And I said, I doubt that. And they said, no, no. They said, I said, how do you know that? They said, we might be white, but we're not stupid. <laughs> they said, we know there are blacks in America who are paid. They're paid to come out against you all on everything you want to do to get black folk out of the ditch. We know that, and you, and you should, and you, and say, if we're going to help you, you better be prepared to deal with that and give us some ways of dealing with it, and they're going to come after you a lot of ways, you're going to have a lot of blacks coming after you telling you, that same thing like whites, that you don't need it, or that's counterproductive, or whites to get angry, or you're going to create racial problems in the country, anything else, see, it doesn't create a problem for anybody else to get something, only when you all get something creates a problem, they're going to come out and tell you that, okay? And they're going to be paid to do it. And they're going to try to do it also by always blending it in, going back to those terms I told you about earlier. Anytime a black person comes out, start talking about all, we all, you all, poor folk, multicultural, cultural diverse, minorities, you all have been had and been shampooed, okay? That's what it means. Anytime you got a black elected official, a black elected official, or a black civil rights leader, or a black minister, you're going to represent all the people you've been had. Your first concern is you take care of your own people first, okay? (laughs) You have never heard a white person jump up and say he represents all the people. Come to Washington, watch all the the white senators come across this country. They say, I come here to represent my constituency, my people, back in my home, in my city, in my state. Only black folk want to represent everybody. That goes back to that slavery bit I told you about earlier, watch that. When they start talking about all and all of everyone and everybody, you're through in the country. (laughs) So watch for them, and when they do it, you all nail them. Nail them up front. I don't care whether it's an elected official or a civil rights leader, but they're going to be coming out against us pretty soon, okay? The second thing you got to watch out for now, we've got to be able to look for the responses of whites going to come out with. They're going to come out with stuff like, why, should I, why am I responsible for, for, for reparations for black folk? My family didn't enslave any black folk. Fine, that's good. But you still owe us. You owe us, first of all. Because it doesn't make any difference whether or not your family enslaved black folk. You came here and enjoyed all the benefits of them enslaving black folk. And you're not paying, you're not paying for the fact that black folk were enslaved, whether your family enslaved or who enslaved them. You're paying for the benefits that you enjoyed then and you enjoyed now. You're just paying for benefits, okay? So you make sure you take it over to benefits. You tell me you ain't concerned about who did enslaving. You're concerned about who's enjoying the benefits and they're gonna pay for it like any other person in the house. You go into a restaurant, they're gonna pay, whoever gets the service is the person that pays for it. You enjoyed all the benefits of coming into this country. You came. nobody begged you to come from Europe or from the Far East or from Latin America into this country. You came here because you wanted to enjoy all those benefits that black folk had created. You sat at the table at the banquet and you ate and now it's the bill time, okay? <laughs> You're gonna run. you gonna run. you gonna run into some groups and me telling you stuff like, well, Dr. Anderson? Uh, 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 I, 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 why do black folks deserve reparation in the first place?" I mean, look, look at Jesse ja- Jackson, and look at uh, uh, Michael Jackson, and look at uh, 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 Michael Jordan, and look at Oprah. They got money. You got to understand that wealth and income is totally different. Do not let anybody try to try to put down black folks by pointing to a few blacks that got income. Those few blacks that got that kind of income, I can put in one cab in LA and take them in place I want them. You know, we, they do not represent black folk in America. You know, I'm talking about all the poor blacks, all these blacks don't have anything in America. You understand know what I'm saying? Right now in America, a, a, a Hispanic or a Mexican with, 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 with a $3,000-year with a, with a income and can live as well as a black in America with a $40,000-year income. As a matter of fact, if I take a white person with a $40,000 income between 40 and 50 and a black person between 40 and 50, what happens there, they're not equal. They might have the same income, but white folks have 3,500 times the wealth that a black person has. It is wealth in America that determines your opportunity, not income. Do not get confused with income. You see, all these so-called blacks in America, they keep talking about middle class blacks. Blacks got got into the middle class through income. Whites got into the middle class through wealth. There's a difference now. Wealth means, that means what's left over after you pay your bills. Most of the blacks in America, I can go around right now, they got high income. I ask them for $10, they got to figure out what bill they're not gonna pay next year. Because they don't have any wealth behind them. And for the sisters again, let me tell you sisters that keep getting hung up on this gender issue instead of your blackness. If I were to take that in terms of wealth, for instance, a white woman in America who heads a family, like they had to talk about a female-headed families, a white female is totally different from a black female. What a white female has to treat her family off of a white female-headed ha- household is one dollar. For that, a black woman only has three cents for every one dollar the white woman has to run a female-headed household. So don't get hung up on this income business. Go for the wealth. And so we start talking about wealth. Tell white folks and the white folks, well, Dr. Anderson, uh, what about the fact that a uh, uh, Reparations will set an ideological precedence that'll be bad for the country. That's BS. Let me go back again in history again. I told you earlier, go back to history. Everybody in America's gotten reparations for black folks. Now, let's go back to the earliest form of reparations. Indentured white servants got reparations. Every white person that came to America as a white indentured servant. He signed a contract for five to seven years. And at, at the end of that five to seven years, he got animals, land, it was called freedom of dues. He got freedom dues with land, animals, money, weapons, tools, and clothes. That was called freedom dues for white indentured servants. Now, all the other whites in America, in the South particularly, got reparations after the end of the Civil War. I just talked to you. Let me go back. I'm going to refer back so you remember this stuff now. At the end of the Civil War, when I told you that they had all that land and all that, and all that, all that prosperity in the South, they could have distributed it to black folks. They chose instead through the Freeman's Bureau to give all that land, all that resources to whites. They wanted to rebuild the South. The government, the Northern Union, put all that money into redeveloping the South and gave it to whites and back to the plantation owners. So white people all got reparations again for that. Also in Washington, D.C., uh, Lincoln passed through this bill to give every white person $300 for freeing his slave. He got reparations. Now Indians have gotten reparations. Now let's go to the Jews following, following World War II. Jews now since World War II have picked up over $52 billion in reparations just from Germany for what they did to them, for enslaving them. I told you earlier, when, uh, when, when Roosevelt was talking to Hitler about, what, about, about using free, Jew labor, uh, free Jewish labor, then uh, the Jews now got compensated for that, for what Hitler did to them. They got, they picked up $52 billion just since the end of World War II. In addition to that, we went over there and bombed, bombed Japan. And fought a war with Japan and even black folks participated, helped in the fight. And as soon as the war was over, the United States turned around under the Point .4 plan and gave Japan over 13 billion dollars to rebuild. And they just finished a war with them. They went to, went to Europe and they put out another 13 to 14 billion under the Marshall Plan to rebuild Germany. The blacks default. Now, with the Japanese, the Japanese came to this country, were in this country, they were interned. Which means in Los Angeles and around this area, they were not enslaved. They were not Jim Crow. They were not lynched and castrated. They were just simply relocated for the safety of the country. And and the and the Japanese have picked up three forms of reparations already. Each for two of them from the federal government ran one billion dollars each, giving them a one giving them twenty thousand dollars for every adult. So they've gotten reparations. Everybody's gotten reparations, with black folk. So you tell them no. That, that, that you entitled reparations. Now another thing they'll tell you, they say, well, they'll say, well, Dr. Anderson, I'm just a single uh, uh, person trying to earn a living. Why should I pitch in and pay for black reparations? Uh, I don't have any money and, uh, and, I, don't, and, and I haven't done, ever done anything to black folk. Get them this way. You tell them this, that black folk, just like everybody else in the society, in a social democracy, have an obligation to the whole. Black folk did not take Indians' land. But we've been taking care of Indians as black folk ever since we came to this country. <laughs> Indian, okay? All that money going into those Indian treaties and going to Indians, and those federal Indian bureaus, the state Indian commission, and paying for Indians so Indians can't pay taxes and giving, giving reparations to Indians. Black folk are paying for that. Black folk did not create World War I and World War II. But black folk fought and put money into it. Black folk did not steal three-quarters of a trillion dollars out of the SNLs in the United States. But, but every black adult in the country has to put in $2,000 for 20 years to repay it. Black folk have not done anything in this country. Where black folk are charged with everything that goes down. And so whites must understand that everything that went wrong with black folk, they got an obligation to correct it. Just If they're white, fine, you still pay it. There are no longer. Whites must understand that the days of the thrill are gone. Now to get the thrill, you got to get the bill. Okay. Now, as we get our money, we got to move our resources into several things. We start developing it when we get these funds. Keep in mind, no black person should be looking for money individually. We're not going to get into that bag. No black money comes, except those who are going to be a part of some of our national suits. Any black that becomes a part of our national suit, you can get money directly. We'll be having hearings through the Harvest Institute in in Washington, uh, Detroit, and Los Angeles, where we'll be taking testimony, making blacks a part of a national suit, because we're going to be going after about 257 white cooperations, okay? Now if we win that, you get money. The rest of you blacks don't get any money that way. The way you get your money, the money's going to go into special funds in the country, between two regional development banks on both sides of the country. And what we do then, black folk can go to those banks and borrow that money, either to get long-term low-interest loans and no more than about 1% interest rate, or the money will go in to help you start a business as equity capital so you don't have any debt, okay? <clears throat> Two, the other thing you get, the other thing we do, we take that money and use a lot of that money to set up a special fund also to go back and recapture our black colleges and bring them back home so they can take care of their original business, okay? <laughs> Three, we're going to try to take our money to go back and rebuild our black communities and try to put it in, put it, put it for the infrastructure repairs and improvements and, and, and improvement of the looks of them and also we're going to try to take that money for black communities and build factories across America. There are industries that we can take and build businesses to be competitive. <laughs> we're also going to take, take our power that comes with that and try to set up a special exempt status for black folks in these some of these ghetto areas. We got ghetto lands, those lands should be redistributed to black folk. You got a lot of state-owned land, federal land and ghetto land and abandoned land, these black cities that don't belong to anybody. We want a land risk redistribution program. Black folk were never involved in the homesteading acts in this country, all that land with the white folks. We want to get our land act together, so we can get some land. And also what we want to do is to be able to help black folk, we want to also take some of that money comes up, we want to set up a special kind of, of a, a organization like the Harvest Institute, it may even be the Harvest Institute, that will go around this country and act just like the Jewish committee, the National Committee of Jewish, which says we will watch and monitor exactly who's coming after black folk and bothering black folk so we can protect black folk. But I can go on and on to tell you, you know, all the things we're going to do, but the but, but Harvest Institute right now is about the only thing, thank you guys, the only thing that represents represent black folk in this country. We don't mind being black even though all of our black entertainers and black athletes and Dr. Anselm. What's the Harvest Institute for us? Well, with black folk. It's what does it do? It has to help black folk. It's who's running. We said black folk. They said, ooh, too black? <laughs> I don't know how anything gets to be too black, when nothing is too Indian, too Jewish, you know, or too white. You see, all white people in America got their own communities, their own churches, their own businesses, their own schools, and nobody ever says something is too white. But the minute you decide to help black folk, it's too bad or too black. And so we're going to deal with all those too blacks too, okay? But the last thing I want to tell you about it is that is that we're going to come together as a group. We need your support in this country. And it's a new day for black folk. We're going to go after reparations, no more affirmative action. We're going to go as a team. Whether you like it or not, God has arbitrarily assigned you to a skin color team. And regardless of how much money you got, regardless of how much money you got, I love you, but regardless of how much money you got, it doesn't make any difference. How much education you got, it doesn't make any difference. Because if your team loses, everybody on that team is gonna lose and go down with it. And you gotta operate as a team. Everybody else operates as a team because, why? Because racism is a team sport. Remember that. Racism is a team sport. You cannot get in the game playing as an individual. You can only play as a group. I want you all to stay together as a group, and we can make it as a team. And and a person tried to point this out. I would delimit our problem back in 1840s. It was Harriet Tubman. When she came up north, they tried to give her a reward, and citation for having fought for black folk. She stood up before the audience and they said, look, Mrs. Tubman, you've done a magnificent job. You've gone all over this country for years, bringing back hundreds of black folks to the North, to the Promised Land. Uh, and, and, uh, and how do you feel about that, have all those trips into the dangerous South to bring back blacks to the, hundreds of blacks to the North? She said, I could have brought back thousands of those Negroes that do only they were slaves. <laughs> and the same thing was picked up. We got all these blacks in the country that don't know that they're in, the, that they're in trouble. And now, and, and, and this point was picked up again by G. Carter Woodson in 1933 when they asked him, said, what's the future of the black race? You know, why can't black folk get out of this and of this problem? He says it's almost impossible to get blacks out and save black folks when all those blacks who are in responsible positions that should know better keep doing everything they do can take black folks backwards. Okay? So what I'm saying to you, we love you. We're going to come together as a team. We're going to do it. And we're going to do it first through reparations. And the Harvest Institute will be conducting these, these, these hearings all over the country. I want you to come forward and try to help us. But more importantly, we cannot do it if we don't have the money. If we don't raise enough money, we can't do it. Now, that puts a special burden on you all in Los Angeles because you're all about the strongest, most aggressive, most sensitive, committed blacks we got in the country. You all got to figure out how to raise money for the Harvest Institute and do it fast so we can have those hearings. And what those hearings are going to do is collect all that data and information. We're going to store it. Then we're going to analyze it, all the tapes, everybody who comes forward says, my mother lost the land here, they killed my daddy doing this, whatever it is. We're going to have all those records in one place. Then we're going to go through it and we're going to sift out the information and come up with the legal justifications and the financial justifications so we can go forward with legal action all over America to try to get reparations for black folk. It might equate to about a half a trillion dollars, okay? So we're going to do it. But you all got to help us do it. Without you, without you, it won't happen. I could spend much more time telling you about the things we have to do in reparations, but more important, one, remember one thing. Reparations means making whole, bringing to a good productive condition. When you're repairing something, that's what we ask in reparations. I love all of you. Take care. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love all you all now.
3: I'm not surprised. Uh, you take a decided historical tone with this book, but what's interesting about the way this book is put together, Dr. Anderson, is that it uh, includes myriad factoids about history, black, white, and otherwise. But in addition to that, you are trying to set a record straight, a record full of holes, voids, and obvious omissions. You say that black history is not, or history in general, Mm -hmm. is not taught very well in the American public education system. How would you change the way it's taught?
1: Uh, the first thing I would do is go, I would have to base it on what I learned uh, years ago when I was over education for the state of Florida. Uh, being over the state, of, over the education system, I went and reviewed some of the textbooks, Daryl. I found out in the state of Florida that invariably blacks only showed up twice in the history books. Either showed up in the in the course of slavery where they were picking cotton in the fields, or secondly they showed up in the Civil Rights Movement where they were demonstrating a riot. And I tried to insist in the state of Florida that they put some blacks into the history book that really told the true story about black folk. And, uh, and, the book, and the book companies told me, the publisher said, well, Dr. if we can't do that. We don't, there is nothing about blacks. We don't have any accomplishments of black folk. That was the first thing that set me off. and That was a long way off my head, that somebody is not teaching it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the white kids in the state of Florida, as well as the black kids, are being deprived of a true understanding of black r- folk's role in history. The second thing I found out there was that in going into the black schools, invariably during the month of February, they call it Black History Month. And almost every school in the United States will have up the same 10 or 15 pictures on the wall of various individuals. Now, I would ask you right now to name those 10 or 15 individuals, you can do it very easily. And, and what they are doing is teaching our black kids that is black history. That's not black history either. Nobody ever talks about the major contributions that black folk have made, not the, not those well-known personalities but the millions and millions of cotton pickers and, and ditch diggers and wash, dishwashers and, and, and janitors. Those are the people who made the substantive contributions in this country. I want to make sure those people are put into a textbook. That's
3: how America acquired its wealth. That's how it's maintained its wealth, and that's why blacks have also been subordinate in the society. Indeed, you have uh, gone uh, that extra mile uh, to talk about lots of different people in American history whose exploits are not limited to America, Mm -hmm. whose exploits are not limited to the black community. And in fact, you start off the book, one of the earliest characters you talk about is a a uh, young man whose exploits uh, carried him uh, into, through, or at least around uh, Spain. You talk about Juan Latino and the American capital tax. What's the connection? Uh, the American capital tax. He was
1: about the last individual in Spain before the pro- uh policy went into effect, where it, where officially black folk were were uh, identified as being the slave class, the laboring class of the world. And he was the last one going through college at that time. He was the last one to get a degree, the professional group. And but at that same time, they passed in Spain a tax, saying so any black person that had a degree, <clears throat> just not because of his education, but because he was black, had to pay a tax. And this country, excuse <clears> me, <throat> had the same thing, Darrell. in the all during slavery, it was called a capital tax. Mm-hmm. That same tax that was started in Spain carried forth through the slavery process in this country, which meant a black person, a black man, had to pay a tax. And usually it averaged about $15, not because of anything else, just merely on the fact that he was black. And what that money was used for was to subsidize schooling for whites mm-hmm. and all kind of institutional programs for whites that black folk could not penetrate, were not included in. So, the, so in, the, in, the, in the society, every, throughout our society, whether it was in Spain or through America, black people have always had a black, paid a black tax just for the
3: mere fact of their presence. Another fact that you point out in the book uh, talks about national holiday that will be coming up soon in our country, known as Thanksgiving. You say Thanksgiving may well have its roots in the black struggle. Right, I think it did. Uh, Thanksgiving initially
1: was a a celebration by Indians in the fall, but it never was called Thanksgiving. The first time it was called Thanksgiving was in in, in, uh, in 1863 when President Lincoln declared it to be a day of Thanksgiving. But at the same time, he put out the day of Thanksgiving, he also put out the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation of Freed Black Folk. And, uh, and, that, and, that, and that, those two were interrelated in giving thanks, and their celebration almost, almost ran together. And so, but whenever people talk about Thanksgiving, they do not, do not relate the fact that throughout history nobody ever had a Thanksgiving until he put out the proclamation, Emancipation Proclamation mm-hmm. in that year and gave a national impetus to looking out for those people who were being freed and, had, and, and were due, some, thankful to God and to country. So there's a nationalism attached to
3: thanksgiving that reflected right over on the black people in this society and uh, in fact because of the <clears throat> emancipation proclamation uh, the event set in motion by the fates of war as well as yes. the struggle between the north and south over slavery you also illuminate uh, a lot of the mystique the myth as well as the fact around one mr abraham lincoln and what his true motivations were concerning uh, to free or not to free enslaved Africans. Talk a little bit about what happens in this book in terms of what you disclose there. Did Abraham Lincoln really want to free slaves? No. His primary
1: thing was try to maintain the Union. And that was the first thing. And secondly, in maintaining the Union, he wanted to help the North to redistribute the wealth out of the South. The wealth was pretty well contained in the South. And the North wanted to industrialize because see, England already had its industrial revolution and the northerners were repressing the president to try to relocate the wealth to the north so they can have an industrial revolution in this country. And uh, secondly, they wanted to be able to, uh, to put the northern immigrants into the country, white immigrants coming to this country into position where they can make an income. See, In other words, the salary low, level was so low in the north, you can't work in it in cheaper than free. So you had to get rid of slavery. But slavery was incidental to the fact they wanted to relocate the wealth so, uh, and not divide the union. So, but but, Nick, but uh, Lincoln never really expressed any any positive feelings about black folk. His primary emphasis was that he wanted to be able to 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 restri- redistribute the wealth, and he was willing also to ship blacks out of the country. He came up with a couple of programs to relocate blacks either to Latin America or Central America or back to Africa.
3: You even quote uh, former president as uh, having gotten a laugh at a speech that he gave when uh, following the. Uh, murder of an abolitionist he joked that uh, we have abolitionists where we come from too in fact we shot one the other day that's right and,
1: uh, and he, he did some similar things too as a matter of fact uh, he even sent a, sent a uh, memorandum request over to the congress to have congress to to appropriate funds to reimburse uh, all the southern white slaveholders for any loss you know and, and it, even if they were to lose that slavery with the relocation of the wealth in this country he wanted to compensate them for reparations, and, uh, and the Congress sent a, sent a letter back to him saying, we appreciate your interest in the South, but we don't even have that kind of money. You've got almost 5 million black folk in this country. We've already invested over $8 billion into them. That is the largest amount of money and concentration of money in this country. The money invested in black slaves was larger than all the businesses in the United States and the federal government's budget put together. So Congress said, we don't have that kind of money,
3: but, but Lincoln wanted to give reparations to southern white plantations owners for any slaves they lost but uh, in nineteen ninety eight uh, when blacks talk about reparations for free labor in slavery uh, they are virtually laughed to scorn. That's why right. is that that's part of the hypocrisy in this country because truth, the first thing black folk have never
1: made it an issue they keep thinking that they won't get it black people are the only country only group of people i know in this country who've labored and suffered and never got compensated for it we've compensated american indians now for almost three hundred sixty years for reparations whites got reparations which they call freedom dues and they came out of indentured servantship jews have gotten reparations jews have picked up over fifty two billion dollars since world war ii japanese have gotten three or four reparations they got about got twenty two thousand dollars each starting in 1990 from the united states they've also gotten reparations from two cities in california and the state of california and they have got and uh... japanese americans who've moved to latin america and just came back into the country last year and picked up over one billion dollars the only people have never gotten compensated is black folk we even put money into Japan under what we call the Point .4 program. gave them $13 billion after we just got through bombing them. We also put another $14 billion into the Marshall Plan to, for Germans after we just finished bombing them. Black folks have never been compensated because black folks refused to make reparations an issue.
3: You also talk when, since we're on this subject, we'll stay here just for a second before we go to break talking about reparations talking about uh, the germans talking about what happened to jews during the holocaust you mentioned in dirty little secrets the fact that there were black germans uh... in fact there was a black german in particular by the name of larry who lived in the town of dusseldorf mm-hmm. uh... along with many other blacks who lived in germany who became prisoners in concentration camps who were forced to do the slave type labor in those camps However, the fact that they were being exterminated is a historic fact that has been vastly overlooked. That's right. As a matter of fact, after,
1: uh, after World War I, there were a lot of black immigrants that came out of Africa that went to Germany. Also, uh, the Germans recruited a lot of the Africans into some of their lower levels of their military. And uh, so we had a lot of, lot of blacks living in Germany when the, when the Holocaust, even before the Holocaust began. And they were the first to go, the first to be exterminated. But you notice how, how, how skillfully that has never been brought out, that all those blacks have been, have been, have been a part of the Holocaust and the execution of people in, that, in Germany. And yet when the compensation rewards were given out, not only were blacks not mentioned, but blacks had never gotten one penny of reparations out of the Holocaust in, in the 1930s.
3: Some would say uh, that uh, the link perhaps between those people and their survivors uh, and in fact if there were any black survivors, which of course from your writing seems doubtful, mm-hmm. uh, could not be established and therefore reparations can't be paid. Well that, that, that's the same technique as you, that's why they, they refuse to pay blacks for slavery.
1: They want to pretend that slavery ended in, in, uh, in 1865. Slavery didn't end in 16, 1865. Slavery became semi-slavery, what we call Jim Crow semi-slavery, ran right up until
3: 1968, and all those people are still alive. When you talk about the Jim Crowism, uh, your book talks about the roots of Jim Crowism, symbolically at least. Uh, you talk about how the whole concept of Jim Crow was actually born out of the old minstrel show concept. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that before we go to break.
1: Well, uh, it, it, it came out, as a matter of fact, uh, one guy who was an was entertainer, he, he saw a little black kid when he jumping around on the street doing a dance called Jump Jim Crow, Jump Around, Skip Around, Jump Jim Crow. And he thought it was very cute, and he put it into the vaudeville act. And uh, and that and, and between about 1840s and up until about until about the 1930s, for almost 100 years, uh, vaudeville was very popular in this country. But what they were doing was blackface and, and doing blackface, whites doing blackface comedy, trying to mimic black folks. They did it all the way up until Al Josa. and Al Josa was about the last one that did it, and uh, on stage. Then then after that, you had Amos and Andy picked it up, and uh, and that carried forth all the way up to the, all the way up to the present day, where you got black white musicians singing black music. And as a matter of fact, uh, back in the 1960s, there was one uh, very popular manager, or one of the, a guy they called the king of rock and roll, who said, if you can find me a black, a white man that can sing like an inn, I'll make him a millionaire. And uh, so now what you have is all these black art, all these white artists are now trying to imitate black folks, still doing the blackface makeup. You can find everything like most of your British singers all try to imitate, from the BGs, all the way up to, to Elton John to... Uh, uh,
3: to Michael Bolton, all of them are imitating black folks. At least in the case of the British, they admit that they are copying the black music style. Yes. As a matter of fact, almost
1: every singer is copying black folk because whites don't have any music. The only true art form in America is black music. And, uh, and, that's, and sadly, that's about a $150 billion year industry and black folk get, like, get less than 1%. And, but unfortunately, that's part of our fault because right now down in the, state, down the city in Texas right now, they are recruiting black blues singers to come in and to teach white boys how to sing blues. They got, they're going to call Blues Alley. They've got a whole street they're building where they're going to have black folk to come in and teach white boys to play black music and sing black,
3: and so they can make money off it. But, but, and you've got blacks to go out and do it. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things you've done in Dirty Little Secrets is you seem to have unearthed or decloaked a lot of the personality around the people that we've read about in history. And you've made them real. You've fleshed them out, as it were. And so we have stories behind the history. Uh, To a very large degree, we see that in the character of the person we were discussing a few seconds ago, Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley thought that she could matriculate through American society uh, as uh, someone who could travel unimpeded because of her exceptional talent. She was a poet, a writer, a black woman who had received education in Europe and was going before the crown heads of Europe. Uh, who were thrilled with her presence but something else happened after she got there didn't it
1: yes she it is she, of fact, before she went, left she'd been received by the president of the United States George Washington at that time and they had all lauded her skills as a poet and uh, and she never wanted to include anything about blackness about being black about black issues or black concerns in any of her writings even though we hold her up in high honor and esteem today but when she, and, uh, but when she got to England she ran, into, she ran into the racial realities first of all she ran into it because a book she received from one of the, uh, the heads there, it, it was bound in black skin, actual black skin. Black human skin. Black human skin, bound, had been used to by one of her books. And, uh, and that shocked her to death. And secondly, she went and married a black man. And once she married a black man, uh, she became face-to-face with the realities of being black in America, and after that she went downhill. They went into poverty and bad health,
3: and she died poor and poverty-stricken. You talk about Frederick Douglass, someone who is uh, known for his intellect, his uh, great writing ability, and uh, his abolitionist stance. However, Frederick Douglass paled in comparison as a leader in the freedom struggle when you talk about a white man like John Brown. Why is that? Well, because John Brown w- wanted to raid Harpers Ferry to try to free the black slaves in this country. And again, John Brown was white. John Brown was and white. He felt he had a duty given to him from God to which he dedicated his wife, his children, and all his resources. Yes, sir. And, uh, and what he said is that if
1: I can go, in, if I can go into, uh, into Harpers Ferry and take that armory and get enough weapons and free the blacks, he said I can use, that as, like, use those mountains like a stake and drive it into the heart of racism in America. If I can free enough of those blacks and arm them and send them into those hills, nobody could ever bring him back i can break the back of racism in america but what he needed he said but for me to do it successfully i must have a high visible black person who would come with me and call the blacks out they're not going to come out to, to, for, for me they come out i must have a black that they have trust in and confidence in they must call them out the two most visible blacks in the united states at that time was frederick douglas and, and harriet tubman and so uh so john brown met and asked uh, Asked Frederick Douglass, well, first he asked Harriet Tubman, but Harriet Tubman was sick and she couldn't come. Mm-hmm. And he asked Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass met with him for a whole week. And they went off often disgusted. He says, you've got to come with me and call the blacks out. And, uh, and, John, and Frederick Douglass said to him, so let's be straight on one thing, John Brown. He says, I'm always ready to fight for black folk. And, uh, and, and John Brown says, he says, look, I'm a white man, but I'm ready to die for him. Would you ready to do that? And, uh, and, and, and in that light, Frederick Douglass willed it. And on his deathbed, he confessed that he was scared to death.
3: The reason that he didn't go to the, the Harper's go. Ferry that's raid
1: because was because
3: he, he was scared to lose his life.
1: He was scared to lose his life. So John Brown went on his own and held that, and, held that, held that, and took the armory and held that city at bay for a day and a half. And, uh, and I think about 52 blacks did escape. But he paid the high penalty. But he said that's what, that was his calling from God. And if he had had a black to call those, troop, call those
3: black folk out of slavery, that, the, the slavery would have been broken in night in 1859. One of the other secrets you unearth earth that perhaps a lot of folk don't know about America proper and blacks is that there were quite a few black slaveholders and land barons during our enslavement period. Talk about that.
1: Well, just like, just like uh, Phyllis Wheatley, we have a lot of blacks who've always thought that they, that they can be the exceptional black and uh, that therefore the whites will pull them to their breasts and say, this is an exceptional black and he's different from the rest of them and therefore he can be excluded from racism. That's, and we have them today, right now, on all of our TV shows, we got them in the, in the media, we got them in sports, that always feel that somehow they're an exception. And even back when I was a kid, Joe Lewis was an exceptional black during, during the 1940s, but whites hated the rest of the black folk. They were still lynching one black person today when Joe Lewis was the heavyweight champion of the world. Well, that was also true in slavery. In slavery we had, we had one guy named um, William Johnson, for instance. William Johnson had an education. He was a teacher, but he wrote, he turned around and wrote and published a, um, a document that was spread all over this country by, by the white racists, white slaveholders, telling black folk to be obedient, to be humble, to throw it to work, be hard working, and quit trying to be free and quit letting liberals trick them, trying to get this, the trick to stop following the abolitionists who were trying to get them out of slavery. He said the best thing you got going for you is to be a to be a slave to a white man. We had one guy named uh, Robert DeCarlos, and he was the first one down in South Carolina. As soon as black folk came out of slavery, he got elected to office. And the first thing he said is in South Carolina, now that we're the majority and we are free, our first obligation is a time for healing. We've got to be nice to whites. We cannot use our power and wealth now as a dominant population in South Carolina and in the Congress to do anything to white folks. We cannot be asking them for reparations. So he posted a bill to make sure that the forty acres of the Mew never came off in that state and that, and that, and that the entire state was a much kinder and had a much better feeling about the, about the dominant white society. Within within three years of
3: that, the white society wrote the black codes and re all those blacks, including him. You talk about early American history and the events that have shaped the character of uh, myth, lore, and fact as it relates to things as well known as the Salem witch trials and the witch hunts. Mm-hmm. You mention in this book, Dirty Little Secrets, that uh, they may have started with an emphasis on black females. Yes, it did. Uh, that started pretty much in, in the, the Salem witch hunt started
1: about blacks at that time you had one black named Tubala she was in that area and she had been she was a West Indian black and she had been teaching uh, two or three white girls about some you know about black magic and stuff like this and how to you know and the conjure roots and the high John to conquer and root dust and stuff like this and teaching them and uh, and they started acting a little weird and did some things that were not acceptable in the community and then they were not told told the community that the reason they were doing it was because of her and uh... so they prosecuted her and, um, and then they got another woman named, named black mary uh... they got her and prosecuted her but in the long run they began to pick up black females all over the country because they thought most of them were practicing black magic
3: and so the, the first witches that were prosecuted in the united states were black women the book is filled with fascinating facts like that uh, i just want to move quickly through the material because we don't have a lot of time left and i want to cover some of the categories you deal with when we talk about politics you t- you you attempt to draw the line of demarcation between what is commonly known in this country as the Uncle Tom syndrome and Samboism what's the difference uh... the, the difference is that 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 people have misunderstood the book by Harriet Tub. I mean by um, uh...
1: Harriet Beach Stover about Uncle Tom's cabin mm-hmm. it was not Uncle Tom was not the culprit in that book it was the culprit was, was Sambo these Uncle Tom in that book Yes, he was a slave, he was, a, he was an extremely righteous and very religious man, but, uh, and, he was, and he was very respectful of the white leader, uh, the slave owner. But he would not, he refused to misuse black folk. He refused to tell where black folk were hiding when they escaped the slavery and went across the river. He refused to make blacks work long hours and, and accelerate their, their cotton picking, and, and as a matter of fact, when blacks would come in in the evening in that book, uh, Uncle Tom would take cotton out of his own sack and put it in their sack to make sure they made the weight limit so they would not not be whipped. The character was Sambo. Sambo was that character who picked up Meritorious' manumission, which says I would see everything through a white person's eye, and I would make them, I would treat them the way a white person would treat them. So he volunteered to tell Simon Legree, "I'll I'll show you how to where the coons hide. I'll show you how to treat the niggas And that's what he did. So he went off every night, and he was forced to beat Uncle Tom Tom, to finally beat Uncle Tom to death. So in America, we still got we still got black folk in America who trying to see things through the eyes of Simon Legree, which means trying to protect white property to save white lives, uh, to invent something that a white person can make more money off of and to squeal on and inform on his own people. And Sambo is that same kind of character and he showed up also in, in the, uh, in, uh, when John, in John Brown's raid that night. Mm-hmm. The black guy that was sitting on the porch that night, when he saw John Brown coming to Harper's Ferry, mm-hmm. he jumped off because he recognized, uh, jumped off the porch because he recognized uh, John Brown and ran down the street and John Brown killed him. And uh, his name was, his name was Hayward Shepherd, mm-hmm. and Haywood Shepard. Uh, is, has been immoralized He's the only black in America where we have a Sambo monument to him, still in Washington D.C. It's up in Harpers Ferry, Virginia. You go up there any and see that, and it tells you uh, exactly the kind of personality that the whites want in this country. That's a Sambo monument. And you have a photograph of that uh, monument slab in the book. Yes, I do, because that's the only one left. As a matter of fact, they had it covered up until up until recent times. When I wrote that first book, Black Labor, White Wealth, mm-hmm. there was such a flood. A flood of people go up there looking for that monument, they finally had to take the cover off of it. They had pushed it beside the hotel across the street when John Brown was killed and captured. And
3: uh, so they, they pulled the cover off of it and uh, now it's out in the open. You raised two very interesting questions regarding the role of the black female and her sexuality in American history. Uh, number one, you asked the question, and I'm not sure whether it was rhetorically or analytically, But one, were females generally taken against their will by white slaveholders? And two, did black women indulge with white men for power and material benefits? And you ask these questions in the context of the liaison between white slave owners and black females with whom they had thousands of children. They were used for breeders. They were used as objects. They were used for their slave labor, but they were also used for sexual favor. And then you say, uh, with these questions, were women, black women in particular, somehow complicit in all of this? What's, th- what's th- the emphasis or the basis for raising those questions? Two, I think primarily they, that they were taken initially against their
1: will, and they were used as, as sexual objects, and, they were, and, uh, and most of them were reduced to being, let, being almost a prostitute and, uh, or a mistress. uh because the white male wanted to save the sanctity of the white woman and he wanted to treat her like precious china and he put up her on a shelf to protect her but the black female was exposed because the black man was out there to protect her so they didn't use it and they sexually abused the black female Uh, but by the same token there were a lot of black females though who found out that by being a mistress of a white man that they had certain kind of advantages they were entitled to and that in many instances their children could go into an artesian class or be called mulattoes and could be set free and so the black female had it both ways. She was in, sometimes she would uh, volunteer to get in that kind of relationship, and other times she was just simply taken.
3: Dr. Anderson, there are so many other fascinating details, facts, and historic truths in this book that I'd love to discuss, but we've got to stop right here. Thank you very much, Sarah, for inviting me, in. Thank you for coming and joining us on this edition of The Journal. White Wealth uh, and, and other materials have made him uh, a standby on uh, many uh, television and radio shows as well as important symposiums and conferences on the issues of economic empowerment for the descendants of, of Africans in the United States of America and throughout the world. Uh, he is Whenever there is an important national convention or convening of people to talk about this subject, I never fail to uh, find him on the program and enjoy him immensely. We re- welcome now Dr. Claude Anderson. Thank you very much.
1: And uh, to my colleagues, let me say good afternoon to you and plus to members of the audience.
3: Uh,
1: According to John's letter, he indicated to me that he wants me to speak to develop a national plan. And, John, that's what I'll try to do for you very quickly. But let me preface that by simply saying that, that if you hear about reparations, get this very firmly fixed in your mind. You're not here for a pile discussion. It's not something to talk about that's nice. If you don't get reparations, black folk, you are through in this country. Maybe may be that very specific for you. You see, what's happening to black Americans is that black Americans have been systematically socially engineered into the lowest level of a real-life monopoly game. You do not own and control a sufficient amount of anything to be competitive in America. And you get, you've been marginalized now for 400 years. You're getting ready to be buried. You can get buried under least a whole broad groups of ambiguous groupings. That's everything from culture groups, language groups, and gender groups. You're going down. You, it's no longer an issue. You better get reparations and get it fast. Now, to get reparations, one of the things I've been trying to do now for 30 years, uh, beginning with with the state of Florida, when Governor Reuben Askew put me over education when they had no blacks in politics in Florida, was to write the first affirmative action plan in the United States, and that was written to be reparations for black folk in 1971. And George Bush Jr., I guess, uh, what's his name, Jed Bush just killed it off about six months ago. But, but what's happening now is that what I'm trying to do is create a Harvest Institute that would try to take all my colleagues here and as much as possible try to give you new points of information that take you outside the box. Part of the problem we've got in trying to deal with reparations and a lot of the other racial issues in the country is that we keep trying to think and find solutions inside the box. There are no solutions inside the box for black folk. You've got to get outside and try to find them and get a long-term perspective and a long view on it. And that's what the Harvest Institute is in existence for, and that's what they're going to stay in existence for. Now, the reason you cannot win, as I said, is that you've been locked into this low level of a real-life monopoly game. You do not own and control enough of wealth. See, in 1860, for instance, black folk, as a direct result of slavery, had an ownership. When you were 98 percent slaves, you had an ownership of one-half of one percent of this nation's wealth in 1860 on the eve of the Civil War. Now this is the richest country in the world, the most capitalistic country in the world. And here you are 140 years after slavery when you're supposedly 100% free and you still only have one half or 1% of this nation's wealth. You cannot compete. The typical average white person in America has 3,500 times more money than you have. And that's not true only of blacks in America, it's true of the world internationally. What's happening right now is blacks are a marginalized, subordinated class of people all over the earth. You have one half of 1% of wealth in this nation. The same thing is true all over the world. In the world, there's approximately $392 trillion worth of wealth on the earth. And black folk around the world have less than 1% ownership of it. That includes all the African countries. That includes Brazil, Caribbean, and America. You don't own enough control of anything. Whites control almost 100% of all the wealth, power, resources, privileges, and controls of all levels of government. You're playing a game you can't win. You've got to get reparations. Now, how are you going to get it? Let me give you a, run through of three or four things very quickly because I don't want to take up the time here. First thing you must do, I've heard it mentioned already, we've got, com- got to commit a national campaign all over this country to start publicizing the issue of reparations for black folk, not as something nice, but as a necessity, period. That means every living soul, every organization, every core, every institution in this country must begin to start, start to, uh, pro- uh, promoting reparations for black folk all over this country. That's level one. It's a massive, massive promotion of reparations for black folk. Second level, le- level two. What we must to do at second level two now is to start having fact-finding hearings. You must have fact-finding hearings all over this country. And you're going to have fact-finding hearings on, on at least two different levels. One is you're going to go after fact-finding about what roles governments have played in the reparations, I mean in the, uh, in the slavery trade against black folk, and enslaving the enslavement of black folk, the marginalization of black folk. And that should break down into two levels. One is to investigate all levels of domestic governments, that's city, county, federal, and state governments. And the second group would go after the international. So you should have two groups of black folk in this country exploring and fact-finding on what, gov- what roles government have played, one domestically and one internationally. On the left-hand side, you should be doing the same thing for the, for the domestic side. You should be going after the private sector. You should be going after all the private corporations in the United States, what roles they played and how they benefited directly from slavery. And also, on the same side, you must go after all the international corporations and the roles they played and how they benefited. Now, the Harvest Institute right now, my think tank, we've already picked up one. We put out a press release on that. We're going after domestic domestic role that major corporations played in the United States. We've already identified approximately 240 companies that are still in existence that profiteer directly and enrich themselves off of black folk. We're going after that. And what we have to do in our fact finding is be able to factuate, document, there are direct line between how blacks have been, in, have been crippled all the way up to economically, politically, socially, and educationally, and tied into these major corporations or tied into levels of government. That's your level two. Level three, you must then start having a national convention in this country. And right now, I think um, Alice, uh, Dorothy Tillman in Chicago has already We've talked about this. She's going to try to call one in Chicago this coming year. We must have everybody who's playing a role, like Congressman Conyers and everybody from the Congress and, and COBRA, everybody, should be at a national convention where we all come in there to not only energize each other, but to share information, see where we are. They're trying to set it up for this coming February, someplace in the United States, possibly Chicago. That's your third level. The fourth level you should start doing is trying to get into, trying to, uh, uh, out of this conference to come strategies and plans and a specific role model. you got to have a role model, a model, not a role, a model that every black can tie into. A model for reparations. Now, my model a little different from everyone else's, and that's because I'm outside the box. I'm trying to pull everybody else outside if I can get them. Now, most, every- most people are going to try to follow the Jewish uh, reparations model or the Japanese model. I'm following the Indian model. The Indians are the most appropriate model if you want to track down doing anything to get reparations of black folk. Why? Because, you see, only American Indians and black folk were spelled out in the Constitution. The Indians on reservations, and black folk, there's a direct lineage between those two groups. And if you really want to track and get reparations, the easiest and quickest way is to go find out what happened to American Indians, what benefits they got, and track it. In my new book called Power Numbers, it takes you through every one of those steps so you can follow it. If you pick that up, you can come right to reparations very quickly because it would be very difficult for the government to deny black folk for the same thing they're giving the Indians. So when you hear, hear people talking about how bad off Indians are, first thing you just say, fine, if Indians are that bad off, put us as black folk in the same status with the Indians. We'll take that. Because see, right, what Indians got, see, first of all, nobody declared Indians to be a nation. Indians declared themselves to be a nation. They declared themselves to be a nation all the way up until about 1832 when Supreme Court Justice Marshall said, okay, I'll recognize you as a nation. We never declared ourselves to be a nation. We've always tried to do just the opposite of what the Indians did. Once they became a nation, they drew up a constitution for themselves. We never had a constitution. And what the Indians did with that constitution is then to go to the United States government and say, we want to have, we do not want to integrate. We did just the opposite. We integrated. And I can track everything right down, or we can follow the Indian model if you want to. And you can see and all that's already built into the law and there's a direct lineage between american indians and and black folk that you can follow very easily and get to reparations and but but let's but we need to have a model and in my new book i get that model to be on the the stand in about another month you get the, uh, the power numbers model that'll take you through all those steps of what they did throughout history from the blair amendments and everything else you can track them very easily and it'd be very difficult for the united states government to deny you reparations when you only two people that have a constitutional relationship with this government is black folk and Indians. Just like Indians use natural, what they call natural rights and lay a claim against the land, we should use natural law and lay a claim against our labor, misappropriated labor. The next level what you must do is begin to, uh, is move to a legal step. You need to form at the, at the fourth level, get to a legal body right now, whether it's going to be pro bono or paid. And out of our convention, we should be able to raise some funds, to set up a mass legal body that be ready to start serving suits based on those facts that you're going to find at the second level. And we start finding those, and we should have people going after suits. One side suing the different levels of government, other side suing the private sector to get, to get reparation funds for black folk. Then at the last level, you need to set up, at the sixth level, you need to set up some kind of a pool or resource or retrieval agency that every time we get some benefits, we're going to a special fund that will be held for pooling and aggregating. Now then out of that, out of that special agency, we break away into two groups what I would recommend. One, you would have an economic development bank on the East Coast and an economic development bank on the West Coast. And what those banks would do is take most of the money you get not give it to black folk as individuals. You put it into a massive bank for black folk and go draw that money to start low interest, get low interest loans or free money to build businesses and industries throughout the United States. You also have you track the Indians. You should go for Try to get yourself some tax-free, tax-exempt land. Just like Indians can go grab any piece of land and federalize and put up a casino, you tell me you want to do the same thing as a black person, get tax-exempt statuses. We can go on and on. Well, there's a lot of things we can track. Go after the Indians. But the thing that's most important, and I'm going to quit, is that you've got to understand that reparations are an absolute necessity. We're going to get buried alive. We do not have enough to be able to compete in this society. And the further we get away from, from, from the civil rights movement, the worse things we're going to get. And when people start talking about slavery, don't just talk about slavery. Talk about Jim Crow slavery and benign neglect. you got to understand what slavery was. Slavery is the illegitimate child of racism. Racism still exists. That's slavery. Because what racism does, racism keeps and maintains what was created by slavery. Now, racism is a, is a competitive economic struggle between groups of people for power and wealth. And it's slavery, I mean, and, and, and racism never existed until the 16th century. And when slavery went out of existence, racism took over. Racism has gone from being, meaning slavery, to being something biological. Then it moved on in by the 1800s. It turned to be something as a personal behavior or an attitude, and now a bias and a prejudice. Slave, I mean, racism has nothing to do with uh, attitudes, with prejudice, and with bias. Slave, uh, racism is a competitive group contest between people for race, resources, and for superiority. And racism is a, never, is a race without a finish line.
3: I thank you very much. Do we have a panel here or what?